Hello and welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. My usual co-host Aaron Miller is away this week, so it's just going to be me again. And as a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to cover slightly more topics than we usually do on this news roundup episode, just because there won't be the usual back and forth and it'll just be me talking. So I'm going to cover five news items from the week. Um, I'm picking these based on my Tech Narratives site, on which I designate certain pieces each week, each day as top posts, the, the news that I think is most significant. And as it happens, there are exactly five of those this week. So those are the ones I'm going to be covering. Uh, first off, I'm going to be covering Fitbit's Ionic smartwatch launch announcement. Secondly, uh, the announcement of a new CEO at Uber. Thirdly, Google's announcement of its AR core augmented reality tools for developers. Fourth, another Google story, uh, this one that Google intends to comply with the EU uh, requirements relating to the antitrust investigation into the Google Shopping feature in Europe. And then lastly, Amazon and Microsoft come in together to, uh, to uh, provide integration between their voice assistants, Cortana and Alexa. So those are the five stories that we'll cover. We'll kick things off with a Fitbit announcement. Uh, Fitbit, for whatever reason, seems to want to frame the Ionic as its first smartwatch um, but when it launched the Blaze just over a year ago, it called that its first smartwatch as well. So I'm not quite as willing as a lot of other publications this week were to give it a pass on this. It has entered the smartwatch market. The Blaze wasn't a terrible seller. It wasn't a fantastic device and certainly wasn't a very compelling smartwatch. But it did sell. And the reason I think Fitbit's trying to bury that as a smartwatch and, and focus on the Ionic is it's a very different kind of smartwatch. This will be the first one that has an app store. It will certainly be a more functional device than the Blaze. Importantly, it'll also be quite a bit more expensive. So it'll actually cost more than some of the Apple Watches out there today, for example. So very much in the sort of mid-tier to premium smartwatch category. Uh, the Ionic won't be out until October. Uh, two reasons for pre-announcing it, really, I think. One is that it needs developers to get on board, so it has to kind of put the SDK and so on out there. It's going to be fairly simple development environment, sort of heavily web-based, so it shouldn't require quite as much uh, complex and proprietary work as some of the other smartwatch platforms out there. But getting developers on board is still going to be a big challenge for Fitbit here. It's certainly not going to be the top smartwatch platform out there. That's the Apple Watch today. The second is pretty much a tie between uh, Android Wear from Google and Samsung's proprietary platform and then there are a bunch of others out there as well. And so Fitbit's going to really have to work hard to make an argument to the developers that it's worth creating apps for its platform when my guess is this device will sell maybe one to two million uh, units in the first year or so. Um, we haven't seen all the details yet because it's not launching till October. I have to see how that pans out. The second reason, I said there were two reasons why it was pre-announcing it a couple of months ahead of time. Uh, the first one being getting developers ready. The second one is really... I think, to get the news out ahead of Apple's announcement in a week and a half on September 12th, where it's expected to announce new watch hardware uh, with the uh, new version of watchOS shipping to uh, existing devices in the install base shortly afterwards, which will uh, upgrade those devices fairly significantly. So clearly trying to kind of preempt that, at least get it out there before that, even if nobody can buy it yet. It also introduced uh, new earbuds and a couple of partnerships as well. So a partnership with Adidas, uh, around um, some of the uh, fitness capabilities with a, uh, an app and various other things around that. Um, 
and then sorry not two partnerships but that partnership and then another feature which is more smart coaching and this really feels like it's an increasing theme alongside the partnerships with fitness wear companies is personal coaching and so going beyond just tracking your activity reporting it back to you maybe providing some generic prompts and so on throughout the day this is now sort of more personal coaching this is something that's in this Fitbit smartwatch it's something that's in the new version of the Apple watch software as well and we're going to see it show up in uh, new Samsung devices, which were announced this week at the IFA trade conference in Germany. So that's another theme, and we're going to see that in the Fitbit watch as well. So uh, this is a logical step. IDC had some numbers out here uh, this week um, around the, the wearables market, and it showed that basic fitness trackers, i.e. those which don't go uh, into the smartwatch category, are actually in decline at this point, only slight decline, but a decline after several years of growth while smartwatches are growing. So in that sense, it's a logical move for Fitbit to move up market into smartwatches. On the other hand, that doesn't mean it's going to succeed there. And as I say, I could see it selling one or two million units in the next year or so, which wouldn't make much of a dent in the overall smartwatch market. Should certainly give Fitbit's ASP a boost. That's currently at about $100. These devices will retail for $300, so the ASP will be a small discount on that given that the actual money Fitbit receives is a wholesale price below that retail price, uh, which should certainly give its ASP a boost but won't carve out a big share of the smartwatch market, I wouldn't think. Uh, the design on this thing is worth mentioning briefly. It's very much in keeping with Fitbit's past design, which tends to be fairly angular and industrial-looking um, in contrast to Apple's sort of jewelry-like approach and the sort of fairly clunky stuff that we've seen from a lot of other smartwatch makers. Fitbit definitely has its own look. It's somewhat um, divisive, shall we say. I think there are certainly people who like it. People who buy Fitbit devices certainly seem to like that aesthetic. Uh, but there will be a lot of other people who don't like it and therefore stay away from it. Worth noting the device looks really quite big as well, and they haven't released exact dimensions on it. But in one of the videos that they put out where somebody was wearing it while sleeping, it looked a bit implausible. Somebody would wear something that large, especially a smaller woman, for example, which is who's shown in the video in this particular case. Uh, it looks very big and it's only one size, so there's no sort of smaller size for people with smaller wrists or for women, for example. So that wraps up the sort of Fitbit news from this week. Secondly, Uber, um, first news leaked over the weekend about a new CEO being appointed. And then finally, it was confirmed later in the week after several days of slightly strange unofficial officialness about this whole thing. Uh, but the new CEO is uh, Dara Khosrowshahi, who comes from Expedia, where he was the CEO for 12 years. Uh, so running a public company, uh, but a company that is in the travel and transportation industry, a company that ultimately uses technology uh, to create a marketplace between third-party buyers and sellers uh, with goods and services it does not itself control, which to me sounds a lot like Uber. Obviously, huge differences in the business models as well. Uh, but he at least has some very relevant experience. One of the most remarkable things about this process was that for all the leaks there were about Meg Whitman, for example, about Jeffrey Immelt, uh, former CEO of GE, being candidates, his, uh, Dara Khosrowshahi's name never was mentioned until uh, it emerged that he was the board's choice as the CEO. So uh, remarkable job kind of keeping that quiet. Uh, and the obvious reason is that he is running an existing public company and news getting out there would have been very damaging, as we saw with Meg Whitman, who runs HP Enterprise. Um, he seems like a great choice. As I say, there's an obvious connection with his current job. Uh, he's also been running a public profitable company, two things that Uber is not currently. It's private and heavily unprofitable. So 
Uh, one of the first things he said in the all-hands meeting he had with employees this week was that he plans to take the company public in the next 18 to 36 months and that taking the company public was certainly one of the objectives the board set for him. So uh, that's a more specific timeline than we've had from Uber in the past, certainly suggests a bit more urgency on its part than we've seen in the past as well. Obviously, it takes over at a time when Uber's going through a lot of turmoil. Uh, there were reports of an investigation by the Department of Justice just this week after the appointment was announced uh, that they're looking into foreign bribery uh, issues at Uber. All the details uh, not disclosed there, but uh, you know that is just the latest in a long string of stuff that Uber's had to deal with. So big job ahead for the new Uber CEO, trying to turn around the culture there, apart from anything else, trying to change that culture in a way that he says has to happen bottom up and not top down. So it can't just be enforced by him, though clearly he will provide leadership in this. And he does seem to be somebody with strong principles. He's been, for example, an outspoken critic of the Trump administration on certain issues. He's on the board at the New York Times. So clearly somebody with values, somebody with um, some sort of personal opinions on topics and so on. And therefore, probably a bit of a refreshing change from Travis Kalanick, whose main value just seemed to be making Uber successful at all possible costs, often at the expense of its employees and its customers and its drivers. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how this all evolves. He seemed to have a very good first meeting with employees where he came across as very sincere and charming. Uh, a lot of work to be done here, and not least of which is appointing the rest of the senior leadership team, including a CFO and COO, both of which posts are currently vacant. Um, but the really biggest job really moving forward with a company that's been through a lot of turmoil over the last few months, trying to rally the troops and bring them together. He did speak very positively about Travis Kalanick, which is important because there are a lot of employees that are still loyal to Kalanick and somebody who came in and basically tried to sweep Kalanick out of the out of the way and sort of pretend he never existed probably wouldn't have gone down well, at least with that chunk of the employee base. At the same time, he does need a clear break with some of the culture and everything that was associated with Klanik. So it's a tricky balancing act. And lots of big decisions to be made, frankly. There's the ongoing lawsuit with Waymo over LiDAR technology. There's the whole commitment to self-driving technology in general and whether Uber should continue to go that alone or should seek more of a partnership approach, which is what almost everybody else except Tesla and Uber uh, in the market are doing, is partnering with companies from other parts of the industry there's a question of whether Uber should pull out of any more international markets as it's already done in China and Russia. And um, in general, the, the decision about how quickly to try to turn uh, the core ride-sharing economics around because those are still the biggest source of the losses right now. So lots of decisions ahead, as I say, huge challenge ahead, but he seems like um, a good guy for the job, as I say, something of a surprise candidate. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how this moves forward. He certainly seems like a a good a good choice and somebody's going to be very interesting to watch as the CEO. Number three, then uh, Google out of the blue this week announced AR Core, which is its response to Apple's AR Kit uh, in the shape of a set of tools for developers to build augmented reality apps. Uh, in Google's case, obviously for Android, uh, Apple of course will be releasing AR Kit um, based apps as part of iOS 11, which will probably launch sometime late in September. Uh, alongside or just before new iPhone hardware. Um, Apple announced that in June, and the contrast versus Google's AR strategy was really not very favorable to Google until this week because Google's strategy has been centered on something called Tango, which is also a set of tools for developers but was very dependent on very specific hardware uh, and specifically uh, phones with several cameras that had to be configured in a very particular way. 
And there would only be two phones that were compatible with Tango, neither of them mainstream phones, both pretty marginal devices. And so it was interesting for developers to create apps around all of this, and Google certainly learned a lot about um, all the technologies underlying augmented reality and that kind of thing in, in, uh, in this process of developing Tango. But it was basically an irrelevant platform for, from the perspective of end users of Android devices as a whole. So when Apple announced ARKit, uh, it certainly looked like Apple was going to take uh, an early and very important lead in this area and Google will be well behind. What seems to have happened in the interim is Google may well have been debating taking Tango more mainstream in the way that it's now doing by announcing AR Core, but certainly Apple's announcement likely precipitated a much faster move in that direction. And so I'm not sure that Google has officially announced that it's abandoning Tango as such, but it certainly is putting a lot of emphasis now on AR Core, which is going to be launching on the Google Pixel and the Samsung uh, Galaxy S8 phones very shortly, and that's likely leveraging the Daydream technology that's already in those devices to work with Google's VR technology, uh, but also leveraging a lot of the Tango stuff. And at least one analysis that I saw this week basically suggested that uh, AR Core is Tango without the hardware requirements. So simpler hardware requirements, some of the capabilities that come through that hardware are removed, much of the rest is still there, very much based on the same code and so on. And so that's allowing Google to get this out of the door very quickly in response to Apple's move. Uh, it's only talking about about 100 million devices over the winter period, and we're not sure if that's December, February, what exactly that means, uh, relative to the hundreds of millions of devices that are going to be AR kit compatible on the iPhone side. So certainly will be uh, a lagging platform from that perspective. And for that reason, it's going to struggle to attract developers in the same numbers and uh, at the same time as Apple's going to attract developers on the AR side. Uh, but a great response, you know, remarkably quick, as I say, response from Google certainly helps that they were working on a lot of this stuff. Very much a concession that the Tango project in and of itself was a failure. But obviously, Google is benefiting enormously from the work that was done both there and on the Daydream side in pulling together this new platform. Uh, on paper, the actual tools themselves look very similar. The capabilities of those tools look very similar. There may actually be a slight edge for AR core in some areas. Um, but you know, given the much bigger installed base of devices, they're going to be able to run AR kit apps uh, on iOS 11. It certainly looks like Apple's going to have the edge on that basis. But it's going to be a fascinating few months. This is certainly huge validation for the idea that smartphone-based AR it's going to be by far the biggest and most interesting uh, part of the AR-VR continuum over the next several years still. Uh, and all of this obviously could at some point down the line still uh, provide a sort of lead-in to headset-based AR from both Google and Apple and potentially the third-party vendors that produce devices using Android. So it's going to be a very uh, interesting few years, but certainly I'm looking forward very much to uh, Apple September 12th event where we'll see a lot more about AR kit and no doubt see a lot of apps on stage and then the sort of app store gold rush that will follow where we'll see a whole mix of uh, AR based apps some of which will be really great and interesting and successful many of which will be less so um, as we've seen with pretty much every other new big feature in the uh, in iOS and, and uh, the associated tools released to developers so um, we'll see how that all pans out, but it's going to be very interesting to watch this going forward. Number four, second Google story of the day. Um, this one is about the EU or the European Commission, to be more specific, its action 
uh, announced a couple of months ago with regard to Google's shopping search uh, feature in Europe. Uh, if you remember, the European Commission investigated Google on this subject as on two other subjects where the, the investigations are still pending, uh, but uh, released a statement a couple of months ago basically saying it found that Google had violated the competition laws in Europe by favoring its own comparison shopping engine over those of other companies in its search results and that that was anti-competitive. That was a leverage of its dominance in search into a secondary category. And uh, Google was fined a little over 2 billion euros. And at the same time, the European Commission said Google had to resolve that favoring of its own uh, comparison shopping engine, as the EU likes to put it. And uh, the, the key thing here being that Google said it disagreed with the findings and sort of implied that it would try to appeal them. And at the same time, the European Commission didn't say exactly how that sort of unbundling had to take place. And so one of the big questions was, A, whether Google would indeed appeal or whether it would comply. And the deadline for um, uh, providing a response to the Commission was this week on the 29th. And on that day, Google kind of quietly told uh, Bloomberg, among others, that it had indeed filed a response, that it did intend to comply and that it had privately filed with the European Commission its plan to comply. Um, there's another month before uh, fines and so on would have kicked in for non-compliance, and so Google will have that one-month period for the European Commission to review its proposal, to agree to it or make tweaks to it, and then for Google to actually implement that proposal. So there's not a lot of time for this to, all to take place. We don't know what Google has proposed, and there's really sort of only a handful of different ways that Google could deal with this. One is to shut down the shopping feature entirely and just remove it from search results. Uh, a second is to uh, put other comparison shopping engines uh, on the same uh, little area where Google shopping results show up so that they'd be on a level playing field. Uh, the third would be to put Google shopping just into uh, the generic search results on the basis of the algorithm rather than se uh, separating it out. So those are the main sort of options Google would have had here. Whichever of those options it takes, it's clearly going to be favoring Google Shopping less because that's required by the European Commission. So all of that will mean a hit to the ad revenues that Google makes there. Um, but obviously the alternative was more fines and so on, which would have been very expensive too. So Google had no choice really but to go along, especially given the fact that the way the EU defined the market and so on around all of this, there really wasn't much wiggle room for Google to make an appeal because um, you know, as, as long as you accept the EU's basic approach to competition law, uh, it was pretty hard to reach a conclusion that was different from the one it did reach. And so I think that's why Google decided not to appeal in the end. There really weren't solid grounds for appealing. And if it had failed, the fines and everything else just would have carried on for longer. So I think probably sensible to comply in the end, much as I'm sure Google didn't want to. Uh, but just remember, there are two more outstanding cases still to come uh, on other issues around Android, for example. Uh, and so we'll have to see how all that pans out. But uh, not great for Google, especially at a time when it's also being criticized over a number of different things from both the right and the left here in the US from the right about its firing of the engineer who penned an anti-diversity memo excuse me and from the left uh, over the past few days at least being criticized over a perceived uh, willingness to suppress speech critical of Google uh, by reporters and think tanks and so on so those two stories developing here in the US even as this EU stuff goes forward as well so tricky time for Google politically uh, and a time and uh, a whole set of things it's going to have to manage very well over the next few months. Last story then for today, number five, uh, Amazon and Microsoft announced a partnership around their 
voice platforms, uh, so Amazon's Alexa and Microsoft's Cortana. Uh, these will now work together. Uh, that won't be available to customers until later this year, but the announcement was made this week. And this isn't hugely surprising that it's these two companies involved in this because they're really the two companies that are the smallest and the furthest behind in many ways in the smart voice assistant space. That certainly goes against the prevailing narrative, I realize, where Amazon is seen as the leader in this space. But as we've talked about on one of our Question of the Week episodes in the past, Amazon isn't the leader here. It's actually the laggard among the big four players simply because it has the smallest number by far of users of its voice platforms. Yes, it absolutely dominates the voice speaker space in the home, although Google's making increasing inroads there. But that's not the voice assistant space. That's a tiny segment of it. It's narrowly defined and confined to one particular device category for today, uh, for all intents and purposes, which is that voice speaker market. Microsoft has a much bigger install base, so it probably has about an order of magnitude larger install base, 145 million Cortana users. But Apple has uh, almost three times that many users for Siri on a monthly basis. Google has an undefined number of users of the Google Assistant and various earlier versions of its voice products. Um, but these two companies are the laggards and each defined and confined, excuse me, to a specific category. So Amazon to voice speakers in the home, Microsoft essentially confined to the PC market and both of them with gaps in what they can do. So Cortana is very effective in managing your personal information and that kind of thing, but doesn't really have many hooks into the smart home space, for example, where Alexa is very strong. So it benefits from partnering with Alexa for the smart home. Microsoft, conversely, gives Alexa the ability to access personal information management. So contacts, calendars, all the stuff that Outlook does, for example. Cortana can tap into those. Alexa really can't because Amazon doesn't own any of those things although it's offered some third-party integrations with contacts and calendars and stuff like that, uh, that's not the same as uh, being able to integrate deeply with them. And so that's where the two help each other out. Uh, the integration for now, at least, is going to be pretty awkward. So it's going to be a matter of saying, Cortana, talk to Alexa and ask her to do this, or vice versa. Uh, that just makes what already often fairly awkward interactions even more so. Uh, in theory, somewhere down the line, Jeff Bezos has said that uh, these assistants will be able to, in a smart way, decide who should handle which tasks and therefore you wouldn't have to invoke a specific assistant. You just issue the command to whichever one you're using and it would get taken care of on the back end. That's a great vision, but the reality is that I'm not sure users want those assistants to make those decisions on their behalf. And even though Amazon and Microsoft may be largely complementary today in the spaces they play in, we're about to see a whole raft of Cortana-based speakers that will compete much more directly with um, Alexa and the Echo speakers that Amazon makes. And so there's going to be increasing overlap between the capabilities of these two assistants. And at that point, it's really not clear who's going to make the decisions about which assistant handles which tasks or whether users will be happy for either of those companies to make those decisions on their behalf. So as a good in theory to, to move to a more natural way of commanding this stuff, but tough in practice. And that ignores the whole fact that discovery of skills and that kind of thing is already really tough on these devices because they don't have screens. You can't scroll through lists of commands and things like that. You have to do a lot of trial and error. So discovering the fact that there even are these partnerships and how they work 
and training them to work properly is going to be a real headache for users as well. So it's a great theory, makes for a lot of nice headlines, uh, led to a lot of speculation this week about Apple and Google doing similar things. I think there's absolutely no chance we see that from either Apple or Google at this point. They're the dominant voice platforms today because they own the smartphone where neither Amazon nor Microsoft is a major player today. That gives them a huge advantage. And as they both expand into the home, Google's already been there for nearly a year now. Apple's going to enter the home with a voice speaker. It's already there through the Apple TV and other devices today. Um, they're going to be increasingly dominant in this market in the voice space overall and certainly won't need to partner with either of the other two to be effective. So interesting announcement from those companies. Also interesting this week in the voice speaker space was a set of announcements made at IFA. Uh, both Alexa-powered and Google Assistant-powered speakers proliferating. We're seeing an increasing segmentation of the market, things like low cost at one end, premium, whole room, high quality audio at the other end of the market. A real spectrum of these devices emerging from a lot of different vendors, almost all of them based on either Alexa or Google Assistant, a handful that are going to be based on Cortana for today. So really interesting competition shaping up there, clearly a maturing of this market. Um, and a result of the sort of rush into this market by pretty much every vendor under the sun at this point. Announcement coming from Sonos at the beginning of October in New York City as well around its voice-powered speaker. It hasn't officially announced that. It has announced that there will be a press conference on that date, uh, which I'll attend. Uh, But we'll have to see what the details are. But it seems very clear that this is kind of the the second shoe-dropping Uh, with its Alexa integration, which is already there in beta testing for uh, controlling existing Sonos speakers through an Alexa-powered device. So lots of interesting stuff to come in that space over the next few months. That wraps up the discussion of the five news items for this week. Uh, Just a reminder that the Tech Narratives podcast, which I also host, uh, comes out daily uh, during the week. And I run down roughly 10 to 12 news items per day on that podcast, roughly a minute each, so much quicker than we usually do here on the News Roundup podcast. But if that's of interest to you, if you want to get a more daily read on what's important in tech news every day, then the Tech Narratives podcast is a great way to do that. Um, There's no question of the week episode this week. Uh, Next week, I'm hoping to have another interesting interview along the lines of the one I did with Mary Jo Foley a couple of weeks ago on Microsoft. Um, That should be up relatively early next week. Uh, So look forward to that uh, next week along with our usual news roundup. Week after that will be Apple's uh, iPhone and other devices event for the fall. And as usual, Aaron and I will be doing a deep dive on that event during the question of the week episode that week, along with our usual news roundup of the rest of the week's news later that week. Have a great weekend, especially to those of you in the U.S. where it's a long weekend with Labor Day, and we'll be back with new episodes next week. Bye-bye.